0: In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Miss Bradwell, apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam and had support from legal professionals. But the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and past to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Hello, I'm Heddle Desai, your host for Never Contemplated. In previous podcasts, we've discussed the importance of attorney participation in various bar committees. Today's podcast will focus on attorneys who are leaders in their field and serve or have recently served as chairs of a bar section. The Florida Bar has 23 sections and divisions. Of the bars, over 100,000 members, 32,000, almost a third, belong to one or more sections. The sections focus on a variety of subject areas from administrative law to workers' compensation. There are also two divisions, one for out-of-state lawyers and one for young lawyers. In the upcoming year, we hope to bring you interviews with the chairs and leaders of some of these sections and divisions. Subject matter sections offer specific and updated information on changes in the law and also education on the interests and issues in their specific field. They provide specialized continuing legal education or CLEs at reduced rates and many offer an opportunity to open source questions and answers on listservs, social media, and networking opportunities at in-person and web-based conferences. Some offer free membership for law students or reduced rates for younger attorneys who might be interested in joining the section or field. Today's guests are Victoria Hewler, the chair of the Elder Law section, and Sarah Butters, the immediate past chair of the Real Property probate and trust law section, also known as Reptile. Both attorneys are Florida natives, graduates of FSU Law School, and both now live in Tallahassee, Florida. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for being here. Before we get into the nitty gritty of elder law and real property probate and trust law and why you practice that kind of law, I wanted to hear each of your stories of how you got to this point. Victoria, I want to start with you. Uh, I know you're a Florida native. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up.
1: Yes, I am a Florida native. That used to be something we had bumper stickers for. I don't know if that still exists, but you had to kind of call yourself out many years ago when you were a Florida native. So, right. I was born in Clearwater and grew up in St. Petersburg. um, So mid-Florida girl, which... You know, I think is composed mostly of Northerners, frankly. So, and some Canadians. I remember Canadians on the beach when I was growing up. Um, But yeah, I've been in Florida since 1964 when I was born. We moved away for a couple of years to go to Maryland where my dad's from, but didn't stay there that long. So, Florida born and raised. Because it was too cold. That's what my mom said. Yeah, they lived in a farmhouse where the floorboards let all the good cold air in. And yeah, she was Florida. Well, she was actually originally from Michigan, but for most of her years, she grew up in Florida. I think they moved when she was seven. So, right. She just wanted the heat. And so we moved back. Dad's farm dream didn't last very long, but I think he got enough for it where he felt satisfied. And the marriage stayed intact. They're still alive, still married to this day.
0: And where are they? In? They're here in Tallahassee, actually. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Sarah, how about you?
2: I know you also Same. grew up in Born, Florida. raised in uh, South Florida, Boca Raton. My parents, just like yours, uh were suburban New Yorker, not yours, but suburban New Yorkers, people who like finally migrated down here. but by the time they migrated, I was actually in Florida, born in Florida, so born and raised tone Well, Sarah, I know that you had a
0: kind of unusual upbringing, um not unusual, but let's say non-traditional. Uh, tell us a little bit about your community upbringing,
2: yeah. i I call it a hippie upbringing, but, you know, I think the better word is Victoria is that it was a sort of a communal, but, yeah, yeah, I was raised very sort of, uh, you know, multifamily, just sort of everybody taking one for the community, and watching each other's kids, and, you know, work constantly over at other neighbors' houses while our parents were, you know, working or doing things. So wow. very artistic, a very creative bunch a very non-traditional bunch um so no lawyers in your family <laughs> no uh uh-uh. i'm that first and probably only my you know it's interesting because i, I just think that that kind of environment sometimes lets you all thrive but none of us ended up in the arts like we all ended i'm a lawyer my brother's in the restaurant business my other brother's an ad executive like it's very <laughs> it's very sort of not the most creative fields for growing up in a in a community that was very open-minded so well you uh i know that you're your father worked for NASCAR. Well, he d- he didn't work for NASCAR. It was before NASCAR existed, actually, I th- or at least in in any popular sense. But yeah, he was sort of worked on a pit crew of uh, a, a guy who raced, and we just traveled around. I remember spending a lot of time as a child in like you know the pit crews in Daytona Beach, which wasn't cool then. It wasn't. Ex- it certainly wasn't expensive. Nobody wanted to be there, <laughs> you know. So yeah, living it, living out of like you know a. a Basically, what would be van life now? You mm. know? So, yeah.
1: So it sounds so good sometimes, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> you know, as a kid, I think it's a wonderland. As an adult, I, I couldn't do it. Mm. I couldn't do it today. But yeah, as a kid, it was like here, you know, just sky's the limit in terms of like uh, the exposure you're going to get in any given day. So,
0: Victoria, what about you? Did you have any attorneys in your family? <gasps> no, it's funny how, how parallel Sarah and my, uh,
1: Sarah and I've been <laughs> friends for quite a while, but I, There are things I didn't know, so this is (laughs) fascinating. No, this is really great. Yeah, no, only lawyer in my family to this day that I can think of. I'm trying to think of how far extended it goes out, but definitely neither of my parents. Mom was stay at home, and then she worked um, for the school system because we were in school, and then she worked for some banks in St. Pete. My dad's always been in banking, lending, that kind of thing. Real estate um, later in, in years, corporate real estate. No lawyers. My brother works for DBPR here in town. Uh, My sister's retired military up in Virginia. It's just three of us. So yeah, no, no, I didn't know any lawyers. In fact, you know, how do we talk before? I I didn't like lawyers. Like lawyers were not on my radar of people I admired or wanted to aspire to be. And somehow I ended
0: up being one, you know, so. Well, tell me, uh, when was your first encounter with an attorney? Was it on TV? Was, was it in person? Say,
1: <laughs> well, OK. I, the good news is I've never been arrested. I've never had contact with a lawyer that way. Um, but yeah, so my impression of lawyers, I think, was uh, as a kid from television or something and seeing, you know, what we back in the day. Not a nice thing to say, but back in the day, it was ambulance chasers or whatever. You know, I had this kind of sour impression of lawyers, right? It's like these, you know, get rich quick kind of, you know, and the ones that are all puffing up and acting like they were the best thing since sliced bread. I thought, ugh, you know, I don't like lawyers. Um, and so I think at some point I decided when I finally decided I was going to go to law school, I thought, well, I'm going to not be that lawyer. My impression, whatever it was, I wanted to not be that lawyer. I wanted to be the other kind of lawyer that I envisioned was the white hat or the good lawyer lawyer or the whatever, you know, something that I aspired to do as an attorney and use the tools of the trade because being a lawyer can be extremely powerful um, to remedy wrongs, right? So, so I found out that being a lawyer actually was so much more and so much better, right? Than my first uninformed impressions way back when. How about you? When
2: was your first inkling that you might be a lawyer or encountering lawyers? I was always sort of fascinating. I still am today with like true crime, you know that that kind of like podcast. I didn't, I don't really like the dramatization of it, but I did. I was always fascinated with like true crime, and so I ended up going to school and majoring in criminology. It's it's never what you think it is because it's also sort of sensationalized in other ways. But but I I knew I was going to end up in the legal field someday. I I thought it would be criminal law, but it ended up not being it. But I I don't know why. I just knew and I really I am the youngest of four children. I'm also a twin. And there is something Yeah, I have a twin sister. There's something to me that like I was always very attractive about structure and law and order and fairness and and equity, especially when you're the youngest and smallest of four children. Like if you don't have those fairness parameters, you get run over in a household that large. (laughs) You know, so I always knew that the law appealed to me and I'd end up in it someday. I just... Well, we're jumping a little bit ahead. I know both... Of, I think both of you are double Seminoles. Is that right? That is true. I Go call Noles. myself a triple Knoll because I went to undergrad and law school and and now I teach at the law school. So I call myself a triple Knoll, for better or worse. Yeah, you're <laughs> entitled to that. For better. Definitely So you better. both went to FSU. Uh,
0: you were criminology. Victoria, What 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 did you major in?
1: So here's another parallel for Sarah. This is after undergrad, but turns out Sarah, that I actually did practice in the criminal arena. Oh, yeah. So I in FSU, they had a criminal externship program. So I chose to do that my third year to get some practical experience. And then I got a job as a assistant public defender here in Leon County, my first year as a lawyer. So I did criminal law for two years. It was fantastic. It was like the best thing ever to get that boots on the ground, courtroom experience, try cases, jury trials, motion practice, the whole nine yards. But undergrad, I was a psychology major I have a bachelor of arts in psychology with a communication minor. You know, it's a generalist degree, right? You can kind of do anything. And actually I was going to, I went and sat for the GRE exam. I took the the morning was the general exam and then afternoon was going to be subject. I thought, I'm going to go be a psychologist. And I got done with the morning exam and I left. I went to lunch. I never came back because I was like, I had that that fork in the road. And I'm like, this is not my path. I'm not supposed to go do this. So then I had to figure out what I was going to do.
0: Well, I know that both of you also share this, that you both worked for a couple of years before jumping into law school.
2: Yeah. So I know you worked it in works. Philadelphia, right? I did. I worked at the Federal Public Defenders in Philadelphia in their, specifically their capital unit. So like, if you're going to go gore, go all in, uh, yeah, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from there. One was that I did not want to live in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And, and my car stolen three times in one, like one calendar year. Oh my God, <laughs> they kept finding it. They kept, <laughs> they kept finding it and bringing it back to me. I was like, could you just keep it? But the other thing I learned is that, like, I'm smart enough and I can do this. And so I just I left there and went to law school because I I knew from just being exposed to that that, like, I could do more than I was an investigator at the time. It's like, I can do this job. I should just go to get a law degree and do this job. Well, tell me what kind of things you investigated for. Well, it was the capital crimes unit. So they were all homicides. They were pretty, you know, inner city sort of stuff. I mean, I I don't really have a fear level <laughs> about inner cities like maybe some people do, but and maybe I was just naive because I was like in my mid-20s at the time. But I just thought substantively it was a really interesting, you know, just... Really, like I said, I love a true crime like podcast or story. I'd love to like sort of peel back the layers and see if like everything that is being alleged is actually accurate. And so I am, you know, basically did investigation and background stuff on capital crimes. And ultimately I just was like, that's not for me. I, I probably did want more of a desk job than running around inner city, <laughs> knocking on doors, but investigating the the killing of someone. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I came back. I thought I would go back into criminal law after law school, and I just got, you know, veered into a different direction that ends up really being fitted for my personality type. But I I did idealistically think I was going to go be a criminal defense lawyer for the rest of my career. Victoria, where did you work in between?
1: So I worked um, right after I had that fork in the road, that epiphany, I uh, somehow found my way to Father Flanagan's Boys Town here in Tallahassee. So a lot of people don't know they're from Omaha, Nebraska. They're as I recall, is their original home base. And uh, actually went up there for training one year and it snowed in January. They had the training. So, so I did that for a year and a half. I was called an assistant family teacher. So, uh, it was to help. There were uh, family parents that stayed on a regular basis. I came in and helped relieve them. We did a lot of behavioral training, and these were children who had major behavioral issues. Came from very broken families, and so my undergraduate degree in psychology communications. I was much more of a behavioralist in undergrad, so it really fit very well with that. But you know, that wasn't it. There's a high burnout rate, and I did that for a year and a half. I'm like, eh, this is not my path either. I'm not going to be a family teacher or go on in this, in this, um, business. And, uh, I was dating my now husband. He was my boyfriend at the time here. And we had some breakups, went back home to St. Pete to the shelter of my parents. And, um, worked part-time at Raymond James as a temp and thought, I'm going to go to business school. I got this all figured out and I'm going to get an MBA. I knew I had to get something else. There was no way I was going to survive on an undergraduate degree. So, I worked for a great guy, Mike Cole down in um, St. Pete at Raymond James. And um, I guess I was still finding myself. And I think he could have, he would have kept me there. would have had to have been like a glorified secretary of some sort, but because um, I didn't have any business training. But anyway, long story short, he um, we started talking about law and he said, well, go talk to my ex-wife who they were very friendly. had two sons and I went and met with her and uh, she was a cool lady. She had me over for dinner. She cooked spaghetti dinner, introduced me to her kids. She seemed great, had a handle on things. She represented Tampa International Airport and other big corporations. And it seemed real to me then like, oh, I can do that. I like her. She's nice. She's not haughty and arrogant. And, you know, I thought I can do this. I love to talk. I love to argue, you know, like people most of the time. And um, so, yeah, so she she got me, got the fire burn in. And so, I said, yeah, I'm going to do this. You know, took the LSAT, did well, applied to law schools, got admitted. Boom. My husband and I got back together. So, I decided to go to FSU. I could have gone to see you and been a Buffalo in Colorado, but I was dating and my husband later says, I would have followed you out there. He was in graduate school. And I was like, but I didn't know that. <laughs> so, so I'm an FSU twice, which is awesome too. So, and you're still in Tallahassee, both of
0: you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Race our kids here, the whole nine yards. So we talked about some things that you share in common, and now I'm going to veer off into the differences of what you practice now. Victoria, you do elder law. Tell us what that is yeah it's a lot actually
1: um it's a we like to say it's a holistic practice so you know there is a lot of kind of the psychology involved a lot of communication a lot of coordination problem solving Uh, I spoke recently to the uh, National College of Probate Judges in Tampa, and I, I said to them, you know, our focus is on the person and not the transaction. So we want to know what that person needs when we're doing a planning or we're in a guardianship or we're doing probate. What's the the person's need, and then how does that branch out from that need? In other words, what family members are connected to that need? Who do we need to pull in as a resource? Who do we need to refer out to? Like I know um, the real property probate and trust law section. A lot of forty percent of their members are real estate lawyers. I don't do real estate law, so I would you know have to say, oh, you need a real estate lawyer for this piece of this this holistic component that we're trying to do for you, this planning or this problem solving. So, it's a, it's somewhat social work. I mean, my social work friends, uh, social worker friends don't really like me to say that because I'm not a trained social worker. So, it's like, I know I'm not a trained social worker, but we do end up doing a lot of the same kind of things in terms of problem solving, but in the legal arena um, and tapping into a lot of resources to make sure the client's needs are met however we need to make that happen.
0: Sarah, um, we, we were talking about the real property probate and trust law. And we're going to refer to it as reptile, because I think that's what it's referred to.
1: Everybody refers to it like that. Yeah. It's
0: catchy. Yeah. Now, I know you you don't do all of those things, but you're the immediate past chair of, of that section. Tell us what you do.
2: Well, so I, although I'm chair of reptile, I'm not a real, I wouldn't couch myself as a real estate lawyer, but we cover both real estate law and probate and trust law. I think we overlap with self-identifying elder law lawyers in a lot of ways, the probate, the trust aspect, the estate planning aspect, guardianship, things like that. We you know, probate and trust lawyers or those who are in our section don't typically do special needs, you know, work, Medicaid qualifying work. Is that something that elder law lawyers do? Yeah, I I think they've got that skill set that we sort of just don't focus on. And so I think, you know, we do overlap a lot in some things. Most, I think a lot of our lawyers would, would self identify more as like, they're more transactional lawyers and litigators as opposed to like, the social working in. I certainly don't have a lot of the tools that you would need to take an elder law approach. I don't have on my, you know, Rolodex, so to speak, um, case managers and social workers and, you know, care managers and things like that, that, that you might need for an aging person who is struggling with, you know, how do I stay at home or how do I, you know, make sure that my long-term care needs are met. So I think that's the primary difference between our two sections, you know, is the real estate aspect. And then also that there are some minutiae of elder law that we just choose not to sort of focus on. We're, we're big enough. We got enough to do.
1: <laughs> well, and I'll kind of just add to that. Sarah's right. And I actually do litigation, but I think I'm, you know, if Sarah were an elder law attorney, we would be more unique because a lot of elder law attorneys do not want to do litigation. They want to focus on the person, but if there's any contested issues where court's required, they're going to farm it out to a fellow elder law attorney that happens to do litigation or go to their reptile peers <laughs> or someone else who has a focus in that particular litigated area because a lot of elder law attorneys want to do more of the person-centered work, but don't want to go to court and have to fight. They, they know who to refer to but they don't want to actually whereas there are a lot more and reptiles just larger but they do have a lot more litigation focus with the reptile members than you will see as a whole in elder
0: law would you say that for both these questions for both of you what percentage is preventative
2: and then what percentage is transactional after If people were better at preventative we wouldn't see as much (laughs) litigation I mean, look, some people are just born to litigate. They're just, you know, contentious to begin with. But (laughs) I think good lawyers do as good a planning as they can to prevent litigation because that's a service to your clients. But inevitably, things may fall apart. People may contest even the most obvious of outcomes, you know, so. But there is a whole niche of people who who specialize in either real estate litigation or we call it fiduciary litigation, but litigation related to trusts and estates and fiduciary duties and and there's so much of it that you're able to specialize in just that one thing as opposed to a general trial lawyer. So it's interesting how much litigation is out there and it's not getting any it's not shrinking that field of work. If anything, there's just more and more of it.
0: You both seem
2: to be helping elderly people
0: or people preparing for their elder years. Florida is a very large retirement magnet, a lot of people. And, and ironically, you and you in St. P and you in Boca, I think of those mm. as retirement communities. That it's interesting that you're both from those areas. Tell me what is unique about Florida and practicing in Florida. It seems like we would have it down.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think a
0: couple um
1: the uniqueness may also involve the snowbirds, right? So we have, especially in South Florida, mid-Florida, less in Tallahassee, but we're seeing more of that now here where people have two residences. You know, they have a primary residence maybe in Florida and a second residence somewhere else or vice versa. So a lot of my South Florida colleagues uh, particularly have to have their dually licensed. I actually am dually licensed. I'm licensed in Georgia as well, although I only do any work in South Georgia and very little at this point. Mostly guardianship and a little bit of probate. But so we have those issues. So, and we have, you know, cross border issues like mom's, you know, gone back to New York to visit and somebody's not letting mom come back home to South Florida to live, you know, one of those kind of things. So, um, so it can be multi state, still state law focused, but still presents additional issues because now you've got more than one state involved, more than one home potentially. So it just kind of expands that, that world of, how do we solve this problem cuz they're in a different state and we got to figure out how to get them back or whatever the issues are at the moment.
2: Yeah, I think in addition to the migration, one of the biggest challenges is just keeping up with the demand. There is not there are not enough elder lawyers, estate planning lawyers, probate lawyers to keep up with, you know, our population specifically in Florida. We try through the law school and through mentoring programs and through outreach to Try to get young students and young lawyers into our fields, but we're competing just like every other set. You know, there's these sparkly fields of practice that people want to chase for money reasons or fame reasons or whatever the case may be. I don't look at elder law and probate and trust as being like high publicity, fascinating, and maybe not even that lucrative, but The demand is incredible. There's so much work out there and never enough people to do it. Well, here's your opportunity.
0: (laughs) What would you tell a young attorney who's thinking about going to the field? Why would they want to go into elder law or
2: trust and probate real estate? If you're looking for a job, there's plenty of them. I, I and I think there always will. There's what did they say? There's two things that are certain: death and taxes. There will always be work in in sort of, you know, the the planning and and transition of death. The the other interesting thing that when I worked at Holland and Night for 17 years, we used to call the Trust and Estates Department the bonds in in Holland and Knight's portfolio. Cause we were always busy when real estate was slow, when mergers and acquisitions were slow, when when you know the market was driving other industries to slow down, we were the bonds in the portfolio that were always just sort of steady busy. So I think it's a great field for people who, you know, want to work with people want to, you know, I mean, we have corporate clients, plenty of banks and, and things like that. But but most of our client, most of my clients are just people. And, you know, it's delightful to just be able to help someone on a real grassroots level, accomplish whatever their personal goals are.
0: Victoria.
1: Yeah. And so I agree with that. I think the other piece too, is that you you don't just get one person, you get a family, like at least with elder law. I think that's true for estate planning too. So you might, you know, you might see a mid, mid middle aged couple and you're doing their planning and then they have kids and we're doing a lot of work where we have adult children who've just aged up into adulthood. And we offer at my law firm to just do their advanced directives for free just to get them set up right away. As an 18 year old, you're going to have an advanced a living will, healthcare surrogate designation, and a durable power of attorney if they want one, maybe even a last will and testament, although they don't really have anything at that point. Uh, but we want to get them started early with the thought process of I need to take care of myself. I am an adult. There are, you know, things I need to do. And then we also get on the other spectrum, the the aging parents possibly. So, um, oh, I come back to Victoria because she did my estate planning. Now I'm going to, I've got a mom who needs, she never did estate planning and we need a guardianship. She's got Alzheimer's. She can't make her own decisions. So now we have to go to court and get a guardianship or whatever. Or maybe mom comes says, mom, you've never done a will, you've never done a power of attorney, and you've got a diagnosis, you need to go see somebody because you need to do those documents now before it's too late and you can't make your own decisions. So, you end up getting a unit and then those are, I mean, they refer out too. If you do well with those clients, they're going to bring their neighbors and their other extended family members in. So, in Tallahassee, our area is real communal. I mean, people like, you know, it's small enough where they like to refer friends and family to the lawyers that they work with. So it's just, to me, it's an easy network for a young lawyer to kind of be that go-to, almost like the old style family lawyer, you know, back in the day.
0: Well, tell me a little bit about the practical, your practical life. You know, um, I know that you, Sarah, work for a big, you did work for a big firm. Mm-hmm. And now you work for a biggish firm for Tallahassee. I
2: worked for Hound the Night for about 17 years, both in their Palm Beach office and then up here in Tallahassee. Um, and phenomenal training ground for a lawyer who wants to specialize in something. Um, Tallahassee, I think sometimes has a lot of generalized practitioners that take a lot of different things that walk in the door just because it's a smaller town. But I think Victoria and I have been fortunate that we both have been able to specialize in a particular thing. And so I don't take the family law, like divorce custody case or the, you know, DUI in town. I just take trust in the states. And I do think that's a, a big luxury. Well, tell me about your hours and
0: what if someone started in your field, what would their day be like?
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, for for transactional lawyers, even generally, I think it's a much more predictable nine to five if that's what you want. Don't work on weekends if that's what you want. Litigators, you know, you're oftentimes at the whim of of court deadlines and discovery deadlines and things like that. But but I do think most trusts and estates lawyers there, it's not it's not sort of these like seasonal bursts or periodic bursts of chaos, like a merger and acquisition might be, or, you know, trial lawyers who are like gearing up to do a two, three week trial. So I I like the pace of the practice um, in that, look, if you want to work 2000 hours a year, you, you will have more than enough work to do it. But, You know, I'm a very quality of life, balanced work kind of person. And I haven't seen 2000 hours since I was a first year associate at All in the Night. So if even then, I'm not even sure. sure. So I think it's a really nice balance of like managing your life and your work schedule and not having to, you know, burn hour, burn the midnight hours if that's not something you're interested in doing for financial reasons, you know. Victoria, you, you're in your own firm mm-hmm. with with I think two other women,
0: right? You,
1: well, no. Uh, Mary Wakeman is my original law partner, and actually, we came from a larger law firm in Tallahassee, and Mary was actually a partner there. But um, yeah, and then Max Solomon is our other partner, and he just became a partner this uh, January. So, yeah, and you know, I think elder law is a real uh, niche practice too, and it's what Sarah just said. It you can design it any way you want. It's actually really good for. Um, small, even solo practitioners who want quality of life and who want to direct, you know, you don't have to have a large firm with big overhead and big staff, especially with the electronic age, you can do everything fairly independently. Um, But yeah, quality of life is a big factor for a lot of elder law attorneys. And if you just focus on, you know, one thing you can, again, Sarah says the work's there. You can have as many hours as you're willing to, to put in. Um, or you can just kind of have a nice little easy practice. Some elder law attorneys, this is their second life. They've, they've been a banker or a realtor or whatever, and they've gone back to law school or they've done something else in the legal. They're, they've been a crim lawyer. They've been a Injury lawyer, and now they want um, a different focus. And they've had a parent who's gone through some issues, and they're like, "Oh, this elder law attorney was amazing. I want to do that." Um, so it, it really does kind of open up the world of possibilities for a young lawyer or even a you know midlife lawyer who just like wants other options, wants something. And and day to day, every day I'm doing something to help somebody. Every day I, without fail. So,
0: well, you both are uh, in the leadership of your your sections uh victoria you have elder law and and you have the reptile The immediate past chair sarah tell us a little bit about your sections and why somebody would want to join and i'll start with you victoria yay
1: Wonderful. Well, I am the current chair and I've been chair since July 1,
0: I guess, technically,
1: and (laughs) (laughs) I forget how many days I have left. But anyway, um, I was lucky to follow a terrific leader, uh, Howie Crooks, who's our immediate past chair from South Florida. So what I love about our section, why I think people would want to be part of our section is we are smaller. We're not smallest. Um, We're 16 to 1700 members, depending on when you do the count. And that's pretty much where we stay. Um, We're never going to be huge. But we are nimble too. So when you're smaller, you... You can know people easier right within the section. There are lots of ways to get involved. Um, We have really good, robust committees, substantive committees, like we have a guardianship committee. We have a Medicaid committee. We have a state planning and probate committee. We have a special needs trust committee. We even have an abuse, neglect, and exploitation committee. So these are all ways, again, with a smaller grouping so that you feel like you're being heard. You can connect easier with people um, because it's small enough and nimble enough that you can get in and get known pretty quickly right you're not just lost in the crowd amongst a hundred or more people on these committees um, and again we take a holistic approach to things we love being collegial with each other where we all mentor each other. In fact, I just had a meeting yesterday with past chairs and there was a past chair from like, I don't know, 20 years ago. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so great to see you. And she's winding her practice down, but she wants to be involved in the ongoing, you know, section leadership and our past chairs are part of that kind of connectivity and history. So I was so happy to see that she still has involvement, even though she's kind of winding her practice down. So it's really cool when you still have those connections and the people really do make the difference in our section.
0: And what do the committees do? The
1: committees do a lot. Uh, Right now we're gearing up for session. So that starts January, right? This year is early, early session. Yeah. And um, so each committee, in fact, more and more legislation is getting filed. Bills are getting filed. So uh, when a bill's filed, it gets farmed out to a committee. We have a, Thank you for bringing that up. We have a legislation committee as well. That's um, that's composed of all the substantive committee chairs. They each have a role on the legislation committee. And then our uh, substantive committees will vet the legislation. They'll come up with um, a white paper, other comments, uh, tweaks that we think if we like the legislation, we can support it. But it's going to have to have you know, different language or or just compatibility with other parts of the statutory code. Um, So that's what they do. We also the committees will put on continuing education, some of which are, are free. They're part of the member benefit, others that there would be a charge for, but you get the continuing ed credits. The committees also will um, bring speakers to our annual event, which is February 1st through the 3rd uh, this year or in 2024 in Orlando. Um, so there's just a lot of substantive ways they can write articles for our advocate, our newsletter, which is a um, almost a quarterly periodic. And uh, so there's a lot of ways for somebody from a committee to kind of be out there and get their name. There's a lot of competition, frankly, for leadership. So we have a lot of really sharp people who are all floating to the top for leadership from the committee level. And that's how you kind of create the leaders. The committees are sort of a gestational place for leaders, which is really great because you get to see them in action and see how much they're really committed because it can be
0: a lot of work. How about for the reptile committee, Sarah?
2: I mean, I think we're structured similarly. Um, I think most sections of the bar are structured similarly, where they, they're sort of the the substantive meat and potato work that people are really interested in and will learn a lot from is done on the committee level, um, where they, you know, just study problems in law and legislation and, you know, might discuss a, a new case that came out and its implications. And so I think the committee level is, is really where the substantive... Interest comes from. It's definitely how I got hooked. I would go to committees and 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 I never left a committee for maybe five or six years without a panic, like "Oh my God, did supply to me? Did I just screw something up?" You know, like you learn so much from hearing what your peers are doing and how they uh, approach problems or approach things. And so, you know, I, I, I was that person who listened in the back of the room for two years, and then I had enough confidence to speak up, and then I had enough confidence to lead. And so I think that's where young lawyers can really start to get involved in their respective sort of, you know, subject matter by just Come, come to a meeting. I think all of, I know that all of Victorias are available online via Zoom. We meet in person four times a year, but we also have capability for anyone who wants to attend those in-person meetings remotely. So you can do it from your own desk. It doesn't cost you anything other than time and there's no travel expense. Um And so I think it's a good way to just sort of get, peek in, get, yeah, anonymously, just mm-hmm. like zoom into a meeting and sit in the corner and quietly listen to what's going on. Um Almost every committee is substantively like subject matter titled. So, you know, like Victoria said, you know, she, I've got an exploitation committee. So if you're interested in that or you've got a case that has that go to, you know, we've got a probate law, trust law committee. We've got, you know, committees that do all kinds of subject matter stuff. And so it's a great way to just peek, peek in and say, is this of interest with me? Is this something that's fascinating? And inevitably something will hook you or you're like, I got to go back to that one because I need to see how this ends, (laughs) this debate ends or something, you know, so. Well, you're uh, the reptile Immediate past chair. Yeah. Your section is much larger.
0: It's one of the larger sections.
2: We are. We're about 11,000 members. I would say our executive council, like a, our leadership council, which is basically committee chairs and vice chairs and, and leaders in the section is, I want to say it's close to 250 right now. It's, oh it's huge you know, it's, it's a deep bench of really phenomenal thinkers. Are we nimble? Like elder law says, we're not the most nimble. We like to debate things. We like to, you know, vet things. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it can be overwhelming to a first time attendee, but that's why I think that being able to attend remotely and just listen, instead of feeling like you're called out to speak or called out to, you know, I think that's a great way to just sort of see how they work. And even the, materials for every committee agenda are so robust and so informative that if all you did was go peek the committee materials, you find something of interest, like, oh, I've got a case that has that issue or you know, let me
0: ask you, reptile includes real estate and then probate and trust.
2: Tell us how those interact and how the members on the committee work yeah. together. Nobody outside of Reptile understands why Reptile is combined. Everyone's like, why don't you guys separate? You're so big. We love being together and we love discussing each other's issues. And there is a lot of crossover between what real estate, the homestead issues. Always, we always have homestead issues come up in in um, probate and trust matters and estate planning matters. And so we just, you know, much like how elder law describes, we've grown, you know, we sort of all grown up with each other. We, we call it, we say that the reptile kids are like the luckiest kids in the world, but they're also spoiled because they always stay in hotels that have room service and resort pools and stuff. But we really, we get to know everybody's family. We've been to get together at meetings for you know, 15, 20 years. And so so our you know substantive interactions are where our, our subject matter law crosses over, but our social interactions are You know, really, I think what keeps us together, why we really enjoy meeting together. You know, we've really structured the section in a, in a way that reflects our membership. You know, we, we rotate from year to year. We have a probate and trust chair one year, and then the next year we will have a relative a real property and probate lawyer, a real property lawyer chair. So I was the chair this past year, probate and trust lawyer. This year, we have a real estate lawyer leading us. And so we alternate our leadership, we alternate sort of, you know, those things based on our subject matter. But yeah, we really enjoy being together. If you tried to separate us, we'd kick and scream.
1: And they're so much larger, so you
2: d- definitely don't want to mess with that. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes with with the lar- the, the, the size of our section, it, it helps us. It's, it can hurt us, obviously, but it sometimes also helps us. We have better bargaining power with hotels when we're planning our conferences because we're going to bring 500 people instead of you know 100 or 200. So I think it does help us in many respects accomplish what we're trying to accomplish too. So yeah, we, sure. like, we
0: like being together. I want to ask you now about other things that you do besides, I know that being chair of a section takes up a lot of your time, (laughs) but what other things do you do with the bar or even outside the bar for professionalism?
2: So I served on the bar grievance committee until I got termed out. I, I you know, again, they had to make me leave kicking and screaming because I thought it was the most fascinating thing that I had done. Um, so I've served on the bar's grievance committee. Tell us what a grievance committee does. So a grievance committee is where a bar complaint gets filed against someone. It's basically the first stop. It's probably the second stop. Um, bar staff will vet it for just almost like what we would call a motion to dismiss. Does it state grounds for, you know, a a a bar complaint is it properly pled? Is it is there a statute of limitations that applies? So, so after bar staff vets it, it comes to a grievance committee and we vet it for what I would say probable cause. Does the allegation, you know, if true, meet? A bar violation, um, and so the grievance committee sort of investigates and cooperatively analyzes the case, and and decides whether there's probable cause to move forward or whether a diversion program is appropriate. And so I really enjoyed seeing bar complaints and reading what sort of things people you know are involved in, for better or worse. Um, you know, and I enjoyed participating in that process. I um, got termed out. And so I don't think I can get back on for another year. But um, I enjoyed that. Are you going to do it? I might. Yeah, (laughs) I might. Bar staff is so phenomenal. They make it so easy and helpful to you that I, I might. How about you, Victoria?
1: I honestly haven't been that involved in big bar stuff over the years. We have a what's unique about elder law in addition to other things, but we have a sister group called the Academy of Florida Elder Law Attorneys, which we refer to as AFELA just because it's easier to say. And I was president of that organization 20, 2008, I think it was. It was a while ago. Um, And so I did that outside. So they're not connected to the bar at all. They're just and it's a lot of crossover. They're smaller, They're like maybe 400 members, Um, but they're through the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. So in some states don't have a bar section like we do. And so that's how the other states have an affiliation, you know, for elder law attorneys. But with the big bar, I'm board certified in elder law. And so I was asked to join the board certification committee for elder law. And that was fascinating. So I did that. I think it was six years, maybe four years, I was chair at one point. And so, what we do on board certifications, we vet applications to be board certified, and then we also prepare the test. Woo, boy, you haven't... If you don't know the subject matter when you're writing the test, you're in big trouble. So, it's like it makes you so keen and so aware of what you your responsibility to create questions that test takers are going to take. So, you have to really, you know, fundamentally know your stuff. And so, you learn and sharpen your skills in preparing the test and being with other um, board certified attorneys on that committee um, and having that responsibility, kind of like the grievance committee, like you're reviewing people's portfolios, It's all confidential. And then also preparing the test questions. So it makes you just a so much better lawyer to be involved in that process. So I think Sarah's experience with grievance is the same thing. It's like, wow, I know I'm doing things right because I see all these ways that you can do it wrong and I'm not doing any of that.
0: Well, I know not all the sections have certification. Yeah, that's true. And so for elder law, there's a requirement that you have practiced elder law for X amount of years. You have to get recommendations right. from people that yes, you practice. Peer with, review. Peer yep. review. What other, what other? Yeah, things? five
1: years, um, substantial practice in elder law. And there's some other sub criteria, but right. Um, past peer review. Uh, you have to you uh, an application. No criminal, you know, issues or if any, then you know they have to have been purged or otherwise like resolved. And then judges, your peers, you have to get other uh, other people who know you, legal, you know, lawyers or judges, to uh, comment on you and, and your background. There's a whole list of questions that the um, the peer review asks to be answered. You know, are are you respectful to counsel? Are you you know are you would you consider this person a professional have you ever seen this person get talked to by a judge in a in a court or been told that they're not behaving ethically or professionally or you know so it's it's not just about like your knowledge that's part of it but it's also about who you are as a person and what you represent to the community because if you're board certified you're supposed to be the highest and best in your field right and so we as board certified lawyers don't want a lawyer out there who's board certified who's going around like, <laughs> You know, fighting with other lawyers in court, or reaching across the table, or cursing, and you know, doing things that they shouldn't be, or being unethical. So we want to try to call those before they 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 might have the core knowledge, but they might not be a professional ethical lawyer, and we don't want them to be board certified. That's not the the representation we want as a section.
0: Well, I really appreciate both of you coming out. I have one last question for, for each of you. It's the same question. Um, if you had one piece of advice for a new attorney, what would it be?
2: For me, it's f- sort of find a good mentor. You know, I could give you advice about how to get involved in the bar and how to, but, but I think, honestly, a good mentor would give you much broader advice. They would both steer you into like the areas you need to be in professionally, as well as figuring out, a life work balance. So I think a good mentor, and it doesn't have to be necessarily someone in your field. It can be, but just finding another lawyer who you respect and can speak honestly about what you're struggling with and what your challenges are is valuable. Is there a a lawyer in your professional lives
0: that mentored you that that you want to give a shout out to?
2: You know, it's funny, I think I feel like I've had a few. But growing up in home Night, you like there is an abundance of of folks to lean on for whatever your needs are. And that was super helpful. There's also just like the person you go to lunch with that might have been opposing counsel, but you really clicked with. We call those friend tours. Friend tours. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I still because I, te- I taught at the law school for 12 years now. I've taught for 12 years now. I mentor a lot of my former students, some who are in my fields and many who are not, who are just like, I just need a sounding board. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need someone who I don't report to at work and who isn't gonna judge me when I ask you a stupid question that I should know the answer to, but I don't know the answer to. I can't tell you the number of former students who call me and are like, I know you tested me on this. I know I should know this, but I don't know it. <laughs> tell me again about blah, 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 So yeah, I think just having someone whether it's it within your firm Outside of your firm, you know, it's super useful. Well, Victoria, first tell me, did
0: you have any mentors? And then you can answer my other questions. Oh, yeah.
1: And I, um, yes. So my main elder law mentor was Lachlan Waldock. So uh, Lachlan was uh, an attorney at the Messer Caporello law firm when I was in law school and I clerked there. And she and Tim Warfel ended up leaving that firm and um, starting a different firm. And Tim was a probate estate lawyer and a estate planning tax lawyer, LLM, and um, no longer with us. But Lachlan kind of studied under him. And then she came into elder law, which was brand new at the time. And uh, I saw her at the courthouse once. And I said, Hey, what are you up to? It's been a while. And, um, you know, I was actually a lawyer at the time. And I said, Oh, I'm doing this elder law thing. What? What's that? Because I was doing insurance defense. And I was About done with that. It wasn't really filling my bucket of needs. It was paying the bills, but it wasn't really my love. And so anyway, long story short, she mentored me. She actually mentored me while I was at my own law firm. I had a, a law firm with two other guys. We were doing insurance defense. And um, she mentored me while I was there. So my law partner said, yeah, start elder law. It's fine with us. And then she ended up taking me away. So I ended up going to work with her uh, for a period of time. And uh, anyway, she was pivotal and, and she was so good at what she did. And she had such a passion for it, such a, you know, deep knowledge. And then one of the things she taught me, which is, you know, what I want to impart to anyone listening is get involved. She had me join National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, Academy of Florida Elder Law Attorneys, the section getting on committees. I was doing a lot of guardianship, did some probate, had litigation because I had that experience. Um, So she had me pushed into all these things. And I was a new elder law attorney. I didn't know there were lots of acronyms that scared me to death. A lot of like high end thinking about money and Medicaid and qualification and governmental agencies and all this stuff. I was like, I don't want to do this. It's like, just go be around people. The more you're around other people who've been doing this, the more you'll learn, get involved, immerse yourself in the conferences that are available, read the books. Back then we didn't have Zoom or anything. We had tapes. Remember cassette tapes, y'all? So <laughs> so anyway, she was really good at mentoring me to get involved. And that's my advice to anyone who wants to, to join the Elder Lost actually be part of us. Just get involved. Like Sarah said, just sit in the back of the room if you want. Doesn't really matter. Just get there, be there. Here, you know be part of it and we, you'll figure out what you want to do to to help yourself but also to help others um, and then hopefully become a leader because it's it's phenomenal being a leader in either of our sections and helping guide other lawyers and we do need more lawyers in both of our practice areas so um we need
0: to help create new leaders for both sections thank you ladies i really appreciate your time it's great being here thank you so much I want to thank Jonathan Siegel and Clay Shaw for making us sound good. Rebecca Bandy, Katie Young, and Sapphire Austin from the Latimer Center for Professionalism for keeping us on the air. You can find the CLE number and links to the individual bar sections we discussed today in the notes section anywhere you listen to this podcast.